0: PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.
1: Week on PA Books, Mira Nakashima, author of George Nakashima Woodworkers Process Book.
2: We are at George Nakashima Woodworkers in New Hope, Pennsylvania, and joined by Mira Nakashima, she's president and creative director here. We're in the reception house. Tell us about this house.
1: Oh, this was the last house uh, that my father built and it was completed around 1975. And it was just under the wire before uh, building code got stricter in Bucks <laughs> County. So um, uh, it, Dad had built, I think, about 15 buildings on the property already, or 14, I guess. And he wanted this to be his, his his swan song, his his most beautiful building. He wanted to use the finest materials available to him, because the early buildings he built just out of necessity, out of cheap materials. and. Um, he wanted to use fine materials in this one, so um, he designed it with a scissors truss roof. And uh, we were uh, just beginning a series of shows with uh, some associates in Japan, so he we had access to to different materials and. My father thought that it would be nice to use the, the Japanese uh, plaster, natural plaster material that uh, comes from Kyoto. It's often used in the old uh, tea houses and uh, monasteries. And uh, so he was able to acquire some and use some of that plaster in the entryway and also in the Japanese tea room. It's the only, you know, almost traditional <laughs> um, tatami room on the property. And it's uh, and and he also used really nice wood on the floors. I mean, in the beginning, he just used whatever he had. And um, but he had uh, bloody birch, uh, which I guess he didn't like for furniture. <laughs> so he, he put it on the floor. But it, it's it's it not only random width and random length, but it's random angled too. So it's kind of put together like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, he wanted to have a Japanese uh, bath, and he designed the bath um, with a freeform shape that is sunken. He ordered, uh, again through his friends in Japan, ordered a wood-burning boiler for that uh, Japanese bath and had that installed. And in 1975, um, he was well aware of the fact that we are going to run out of fossil fuels one of these days. And he wanted this building to be habitable without fossil fuels. So um, there is, you know, he did install an, uh, a boiler with, with hot water uh, heat uh, that's, that's, you know, the boiler is run by oil, I think. <laughs> uh, but he also built this great big fireplace behind me in the style of the... Early American farmhouses, and it's kind of built like a Franklin stove too. So it projects out into the the room, and it does have a, a fan system behind it, so it can heat the entire uh, building, which is basically a one one room building. So he was he was ahead of his time as far as uh, fossil fuel consumption. He was also ahead of his time in. Uh, the, there's a building down the hill here, which is called the Pool House, and it's a it's a warped shell roof, but it has uh, it has hot water pipes on the roof. So that was his way of utilizing the solar heat uh, to heat the the water in that building in 1960 before people really thought about that. So I'm pretty proud of Dad that he <laughs> he uh, looks forward to well, I mean he's very relevant today even and uh, were lucky to, to have the materials that he had. He happened to have this Buckeye Burl uh, plank from California that he'd purchased, and he used it as a centerpiece of this room. These Ottomans here are, uh, were designed for Governor Rockefeller's home in Bochantico Hills, and that goes back to a piece of Dad's history that when he, um, after he finished his round-the-world trip, um, on a steamship, because he graduated from MIT in 1930, and uh, one of his jobs was uh, mural painting. He, does, did, he painted some murals in Albany, also in Harrisburg, but then he ran out of work and decided that the best thing to do would be to sell his car and buy a steamship ticket around the world. So that's what he did. <laughs> Started off in uh, 1932 or so, And uh, went to Paris, he bummed around Paris for a while and then got on the boat and ended up in Tokyo, uh, where some of his relatives were. And his father said, I think it's time you got a real job. So he got a job with Antonin Raymond, uh, who was a Czech architect, uh, trained in Taliesin with Frank Lloyd Wright, and was called over by him to uh, help on the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. In 1921, I think it was, and um, and then he opened his own office and invited a lot of uh, uh, architects who had been trained in the USA and in Europe and were familiar with the 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 new technology of steel and concrete, and so Dad was in that hotbed of architects in the 1930s uh, in Tokyo, and was commissioned. Oh, uh, he wasn't commissioned, but. Raymond was commissioned to build a dormitory in uh, South India for the Sri Aurobindo Ashram, and she wanted it out of reinforced concrete. And um, Raymond knew that he'd have to send an architect to be on site to supervise the construction, and nobody else wanted to go, so Dad volunteered, and he went in uh, 1936 and became so involved with the fabric of the ashram during the process of building this building, that he became a disciple of Shirobindo in 1938, and uh, thought he was going to stay there for the rest of his life. Anyway, one of his best friends at the Raymond office was Junzo Yoshimura, and uh, Yoshimura took him around to all these buildings that he thought were beautiful architecture, and so he, he learned a lot about traditional architecture and aesthetics. and the way buildings are put together and the modulation of shoji screens and all that sort of thing from his friend Junzo Yoshimura. Now, Rockefeller had uh, commissioned Junzo uh, to design his home in Pocantico Hills and wanted him to do the furniture. And Junzo said to Rockefeller, why don't you have my friend George do it instead? So that became, I think, the largest project my father ever did and uh, the most lucrative project. And because of that project, he must have had money in the bank, and so he built this building and was able to afford to use fine materials for this. So, That's where we are.
2: (laughs) Many of the items that were surrounded by the chairs, the the tables, the ottomans, as you mentioned, were were designed by him and built here. Uh, Now, You've published a book called A Process Book that includes drawings and, and photographs of many of these. What is a process book?
1: Well, I had a, a design assistant a few years ago and um, we had had catalogs, you know, in different forms from the 1960s. And some of the early catalogs had drawings that my freehand drawings that my father had done of the furniture. And then when I came in um, in the oh, I came here in 1970 to came back to help dad, <clears throat> after he passed in 1990, um, I had a a friend who was a graphic designer and was also a photographer, and we started making catalogs with with photographs of actual pieces of furniture. And my design assistant said, well, the trouble with that is they are specific pieces of furniture. Every piece we make is different, and people will get the catalog, and they'll look at a picture and say, I want one of those, and they can never have one exactly like that. So she said, it's confusing, and we should we should make a a book that explains our process. You know, why things never come out the same, why they're designed around the piece of wood, uh, what happens when the wood is finished and why it changes color and why we don't have any control over that because we don't use stains. And uh, so we went back to the sketch format and sh- we were able to find sketches of most of the furniture that my father had done before he passed, but. There's a lot of designs that I have developed since then, and so I was asked to make new drawings, and they were put alongside my dad's drawings, and it was really hard because his sketches are really beautiful, and mine don't look the same. So, it was that was the hardest part of making that book is is doing the uh, the sketches that that didn't look, you know, that looked sort of like dad's. Even though they weren't, because uh, you know, when I first did a set of them. I thought, you know, they look terrible. You know, I can't put them in the book next to my father's sketches. So I had to do a lot of work to try to make them better. Uh, I think they're, they're, not too bad. <laughs> but it was a lot of work.
2: <laughs> your father became very well known as a furniture designer, but he was originally trained to be an architect. How did he become interested in architecture?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> he. Um, He, uh, my father, uh, was uh, born in Spokane, Washington. He grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and just recently, and it was last year, I received um, an email from someone that I didn't know. His name was Ron Ketcherside, and he had done a lot of. He's, I guess, he's a Boy Scout leader, and his son has is in the Boy Scouts, and somehow, really, he he got access to the archives of the Boy Scouts of America and he found information about my father and his trips. When he was a Boy Scout, now Dad was born in 1905. So when he was a Boy Scout, it was in the 1920s at the most. And he said back then, the Boy Scouts were just emerging from nowhere. He said they were they kind of emerged in the tracks of the, the Mountaineers. And so it wasn't like the Boy Scouts of America today when everything is pretty well set and you don't do anything that exciting. <laughs> Back then in the Pacific Northwest, the trails weren't even marked a lot of the times. There had been, you know, sort of, I guess there were stories that were passed along to people about where they'd been and which passes they used to go over the mountains and so forth. But a lot of it was almost uncharted territory. And he found in the, the Boy Scout archives exactly when and where my father traveled. He said it wasn't just a question of horizontal travel, uh, but it was a question of vertical travel. I mean, Dad always talked about when he was, uh, he he just was really excited and and, uh, interested in, and, and forever grateful for the experience of hiking in the Pacific Northwest Mountains. But I didn't know how primitive that was. I mean, Ron Ketcherside went into the archives and found the the kinds of heavy backpacks that they used at the time and the kinds of canned foods that they had to take with them when they went uh, traveling. I actually met Ron Ketcherside when I was in Seattle. When was I in Seattle? In March um, they asked me to do a talk at the Seattle Art Museum, and he was in Seattle, so I contacted him, and I said, "Can I meet?" And I wanted to thank him for putting all that material together and, and uh, you know, explaining how tough my dad was. That you know, he could have done those hikes solo. A lot of them were done solo, and uh, he, you know, he talked about in his book, "The Soul of a Tree," about he would get up to the to the to the top of the mountains and he he'd lie down on the on the on the boughs of the tree and and sleep but he did this all by himself and, and you know to 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 have the um, the confidence and the ability and the and the capability of of you know climbing up all those mountains and and across them and down again and carrying your own heavy food on your back and I guess he caught some fish along the way, and and he slept on the ground, and you know just just to do that for so many years, and he he always spoke about how you know hiking in the Pacific Northwest had such a great influence on him, and how beautiful it was at the the timberline, and and how quiet it was, and oh, I should have sometimes I when we have meetings I, I take his book. I mean his book the soul of a tree is still our bible here in, in new hope whenever we get stuck about you know what should we do next we think well what would dad do and then we we go and especially my husband he's, he's much more into books than i am um he'll find some kind of quotation that's relevant to whatever we're doing and yeah george would have done that and then we that's what we try to do <laughs> but anyway um yeah so uh dad Um, was so influenced by that hiking experience that he he majored in forestry when he went to University of Washington. And then I guess he began to realize uh, in the Northwest, most of the forestry education was about softwoods, and he became interested in hardwoods and in building. So he went into architecture, and uh, we have a few of the drawings left. Um, Sometimes we exhibit them down in the Arts Building. And they're beautiful, so he must have had a talent for drawing when he was growing up. Unfortunately, I don't have access to the early drawings, but I mean, you don't just jump into college and do this, this beautiful drawing of a building. with nothing before that. I mean, he must have been, I don't know what he did in, in art, unfortunately, but he must have been a really uh, talented artist before he went into architecture. And um, then he got a scholarship to Harvard and uh, he went, he, first he wrote letters back to his parents and said, Oh, I'm so grateful to be at this, this venerable institution. And then after two weeks, he said, This isn't for me. They don't, they don't care about building and, and structures. And so he somehow got his scholarship transferred to MIT. So he got his, his uh, degree in architecture from MIT in 1930. Um, and, but he was always, I guess interested in more in building and engineering than he was in just creating spaces and forms like architects do but.
2: how did he make the transition from architecture to furniture design
1: ha. that's another good question <laughs> um well let me see he worked uh after he got this job with anton and raymond he worked in Japan for a, a couple of years and was became familiar with with the Japanese carpenters and the fact that a master carpenter had learned uh, his his techniques uh, from centuries back. I mean, it was passed on through generation and generation, and the, the knowledge of trees was was really important when they were when they were building buildings. And because of their accumulated knowledge, they didn't really have any engineers when Raymond first came to Japan. Uh, the master carpenters knew everything in their heads just instinctively from the history of their, their work. And uh, then dad went to India and he had to, to make sure that the reinforced concrete was designed properly by engineers, that, that the, the forms were made properly, that the building, uh, the concrete was Processed properly and the steel was laid right and so forth, all during the building process. And so, it, it, the, to this day, that building, Gokond, is one of the finest buildings uh, in India. It was the very first uh, building ever built in the whole continent of India in reinforced concrete in, in 1936. And um, so anyway, because of the war, Dad was on his way back to the US. He stopped in Japan for a little, I think, six months or so. And then um, when he came to the US, in the meantime, when he was in Tokyo, he met my mother, who was on her way back from Australia. They'd both been brought up in Seattle. And they became engaged and were married in Los Angeles. And before my mother left Japan and came to meet my father, Dad decided he'd better do a survey of the architecture along the West Coast. And in doing so, (laughs) um, the story is that it was a Frank Lloyd Wright building. It may have been another building. But he was just like totally disillusioned with the way American architecture was being made. He said it was very shoddy craftsmanship. It was like a stage set. I mean, they would use bang together two by fours with nails. Then they covered it up with something nice so it looked nice. And um, he said he, he wanted to do honest architecture. He wanted to do something that he could control the quality of from the beginning to the end. So um, when he got married and moved up to Seattle, he did architecture for a while uh, to help pay the bills. But he also developed a uh, friendship with this uh, Marinal priest, uh, Leopold Tibbsar, who was uh, he was ministering to the Japanese American community. And he worked out, at, I don't know if Tibissar came to him or he went to Tibisar, but Tibissar had built a, um, a center for the Marinal missionaries and there was a boys club in the basement that he had furnished with woodworking tools and he needed somebody to teach woodworking to the young men in the community. So dad got the job. He taught uh, woodworking to the young men of the community but he was also allowed to use the machinery to create his own uh, set of furniture. So he just went out and started making furniture <laughs> in Seattle. Um, working with the Raymond office, the Raymond was, office was like the Corbusier office. They did the entire thing. They didn't just do the structure, they didn't just do the building, they also did the interiors. So uh, Noemi Raymond particularly was in charge of the interiors and so I'm sure my father worked with her. There's a, a, a series of books that the Raymonds put out in the 1930s, and I believe some of those drawings were done by my father. So he learned not only about structure of buildings, but uh, about uh, fr- designing furniture from the Raymonds. So, but but you know, to go out with furniture as his main occupation was pretty gutsy. I mean, I think back in those days, if you studied design, there weren't too many choices. I mean, now there's all different kinds of design you can study, but um, there was, I don't think there was anything which is now known as industrial design. It was it was all just architecture or something. So Dad felt that he could do uh, furniture because he said it was like architecture, only smaller.
2: Now, during the Second World War, Franklin Roosevelt ordered the internment of Japanese Americans along who were living in the West Coast areas and you, your mother, and your father uh, were interned in Idaho. What was that experience like for your family?
1: Well, my mother was a basket case. I was six weeks old when we were interned. And it was you know, it was her first child, and that was bad enough. But be, to be put into camp where they're, they're, you know, there's just a communal you know, bathroom and, and no kitchen facilities and, and um, yeah, out in the desert, uh, they, my Aunt Thelma, one thing that they did, which was a, a good thing to do, was they realized that if they were all stuck in this camp on the desert, at least they would gather as many members of the family along the East Coast together as they could and, and asked to be put in the same camp. So even though we were in camp, we had each other. So that was a good thing. My mother's uh, sister and her father came up from Los Angeles to be with us. and. Um, most of my dad's relatives were in the, uh, I think my grandparents were in Portland, Oregon, so they came with us, and uh, dad's siblings were in uh, Seattle. So they all came with us, and we were all together um, as a family. I don't think we were in this in the same block, but uh, we were all near each other anyway during that, that period of time. And um, as I said, uh, my aunt, Thelma, uh, was, I guess, more strong-hearted than my mother, and uh, she took care of me while we were in camp, and and my grandfather was was there as well. Um, Dad was put to work uh, alongside a Japanese carpenter by the name of Gentaro Hikogawa, who was a master carpenter who'd come from Japan. He'd been trained in Japan. And the authorities decided that that was a good combination. They would put George Nakashima, the architect, together again, Taro Hikogawa, the carpenter, and they would use whatever materials they could find to try to make our our barracks more livable. So Dad was eternally grateful for that experience. Somehow or other, although they, they, they took away dangerous weapons, like cameras, from us when we were in camp. Uh, the, he must have been allowed to have his hand tools. So dad learned a lot about Japanese hand tools and joinery and, and the whole idea of using found materials. They didn't have any good materials. They used leftover packing crates and you know, leftover building materials. And they, they found some little pieces of hardwood growing in the desert that were called bitter brush. And they would gather those together and they would make things as best they could from the materials they had. And uh, so that was a learning experience for my father, which he was forever grateful for. And he, dad was a boy scout, he was a camper. He was used to roughing it out. He didn't he didn't mind that mother was not happy. <laughs> I don't think anybody else was happy either.
2: <laughs> we'll be back in a moment with the PA Books Podcast.
0: Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.
2: How did your family end up coming to Pennsylvania?
1: Well, it turned out that uh, Dad's professor, uh, I think he was the head of architecture uh, at MIT, found out what had happened to us. And the Raymonds had left, uh, uh, Japan and had come back to the USA by a circuitous, circuitous route. Um, they went by way of South America and then by way of Europe, and then came back uh, across the Atlantic uh, to uh, resettle in the U.S., and they found a broken-down farmhouse in Pennsylvania and moved in, and so they, were, they had an architectural office. They had actually brought some of their employees from Tokyo with them. To work in Pennsylvania before the war got really bad, and uh, so this professor at MIT contacted Mr. Raymond and said, "Mr. and Mrs. Raymond, I think Mrs. Raymond was was instrumental in, in getting us the the release. But he said well, if you would sponsor the Nakashimas uh, to work on your farm, um, they could be released from camp. Uh, you know, so they did that and." Uh, Dad was only allowed to do chicken farming. He wasn't allowed to do any architecture because they were working on government projects. And, uh, so, but he did chicken farming, and that's how we got to Pennsylvania. There's, you know, The farmhouse is still down the hill from here. And then after the war, we were released, and Dad found a little cottage um, down the road that had been abandoned for a number of years. So he continued his work um, out of that little cottage, and then he found this property, which is a south-facing slope, and he decided this was a beautiful place to, to build something. And uh, he found who owned it and went and knocked on his door and uh, said, I don't have any money, <laughs> but I would like to uh, start work and build a house on three acres of your property. Is it OK if I work it off in labor? And so the farmer happened to be an MIT graduate. He says, OK, fine. So. Um, there was a, a, an army tent. Dad started building the, the uh, shop first, the workshop, because he knew that he would need a place to work and to earn money. And then um, he, one of his, I guess it was a friend, I, he must have been a friend, said, you know, I'm having troubles with my wife. Can I pitch my tent on your property? And Dad said, sure. And then he made up with his wife and left the tent behind. And so that's where we lived for the first uh, year or so. <laughs> And then he kept on building.
2: So after the Second World War, as your father begins to establish his woodworking business here, how long does it take for it to catch on?
1: Well, in the beginning, when Dad was, um, when we were all staying down at the Raymond Farm, um, Anton and Noemi um, knew some of the people in the design world and introduced Dad to Hans Knoll, and. Uh, um, in the mid-40s, I think after Dad, I don't remember if it happened while we were still at Raymond Farm or after we moved to the cottage on Aquitong, but somewhere in the mid-40s, uh, uh, Hunts and Shoe Knoll decided that the way to make their f- furniture business more attractive and interesting and successful would be to hire a series of designers and artists Um, To make particular designs that Knoll would then manufacture. So they chose uh, Harry Bertoia, who's a sculptor, lives about an hour away from here. Uh, Isamu Noguchi, who had similar background as my father, my father, um, and several other people who were in the first design group that that were uh, part of the Knoll studios. And so in the beginning um my mother was the bookkeeper of our business now, from the very beginning and it's interesting she kept a, a very careful ledger of every single penny that was spent and and earned <laughs> and uh, she would you know she would keep track of how many screws we bought and how many pieces of wood and how much glue and you know whatever we needed to make furniture, she would keep in one pile, uh, one f- column, and the other column would be you know what people paid for that uh, furniture. So we have a a, a pretty good uh, account of what happened. And Dad m- made the prototypes for the Knoll series um, at his shop. I think it's, he started on the shop uh, on Aquatong, and. Um, as time went on, then then he gave permission for Knoll to manufacture the same designs that he was making at home, and uh, so that gave him a little uh, bit of money and, and notoriety. I mean, he was also selling out of Ray Boone Studios in New York City, because I, I he must have made an arrangement with that gallery, um, and so his name sort of started to trickle out into the public and. Rayburn Studios, being in New York, must have done some kind of publicity. They certainly had more exposure than we had in New Hope, and Noel um, publicized the <coughs> the artists who were who were uh, designing furniture for them, and then later on, so his names started to, to trickle out. Um, then in the, that, but he Dad kind of like wasn't happy with mass production. That, you know, he couldn't control the quality, and they always ma- made shortcuts, and, and uh, it looked different than the stuff that he was making. And so the Knoll contract didn't last very long. I think it, it um, he started in maybe 47, and then I think it was over by 54, so it was just a short number of years where he was working with Knoll Studios. But they did get his name out to the to the world, and that was a that was a good start. And then in the... In the 60s, early 70s, I think it was, he uh, became, I think it was, uh, when I was doing research for my book, Nature, Form, and Spirit, which I'm trying to get back into, uh, uh, get republished (laughs) uh, because it's it's out of print, I found there was a a beautiful book that was uh, signed to my father from Morris Graves on shaker furniture, for one thing. There was also a magazine that was devoted entirely to Frank Lloyd Wright and his furniture designs, and it looked like Dad had been reading it. There was a little bookmark there, and it was a picture of Frank Lloyd Wright's furniture designs and a really scathing article that somebody had written about his furniture thing. They said it was the most uncomfortable furniture they'd ever sat in, but it was mass produced. And that I think he must have thought, well, if Franklin Wright could mass produce that stuff, I can do something better than that. So he he, um, had a contract with Whitaker Mueller and designed a a number of things uh, that were were manufactured in Grand Rapids. And um, I think he was, again, dissatisfied with the quality, because they would take his designs and then they'd change them a little bit and call it Nakashima. And he said, it's not mine. So he that contract didn't last very long either, but it did get his name out there. There were a number of publications that would, you know, these big spreads about Nakashima designs for Whitcomb, and so you know people got to know him better. And you know from that time on, he was just kind of rolling along. And and, um, there was a, a a group of people from Philadelphia. I think they were mostly i think they were mostly jewish people (laughs) who had money and they would buy nakashima furniture and then the the neighbors would look at it and say oh i gotta have some too and then then, then the next day i mean we had a lot of clients in the philadelphia area in the in the beginning and then now we're since dad passed away i was a little nervous because uh the secondary market so-called secondary market of used Nakashima furniture <laughs> started to take off, and I thought, well, this is going to be competition. But it turned out that it's actually helped us a great deal. Um, there are a number of uh, dealers um, who will give us a lot of free publicity if we do, a, you know, if they have stuff. And then um, the auction houses have gone, they've gone worldwide, and they, they have their lists and their, and their biddings and so forth online. So there are people from all over the world that bid on Nakashima Furniture, and they've become aware of Nakashima Furniture. So a lot of those people are disappointed because it's either too expensive or not the right size or something, and they will come to us and, or, and order. So um, we've been lucky <laughs> so far.
2: So uh, how did he arrive at his style? We're sitting next to one of his tables, and you know, clearly it's not your uh, rectangular table where everything's been shaped, and instead he's using the, the natural form of the tree. How did he arrive at that style?
1: Well, I think basically it comes from his experience in the Pacific Northwest when he was uh, hiking. He, he just really developed a, a... You know, When he wrote his book, The Soul of a Tree, in 1981, I, I wasn't very old, and I thought, what's he talking about? And the older I get, the more I understand what he was talking about. So I think that was the, 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 the seed of, of how that came to be. But the actuality of it, uh, when he was in Seattle, he was just using straight-edge lumber, because that's what he had. Uh, when he came here and tried to open his business in, in uh, New Hope, uh, he couldn't afford the nice straight-edge lumber, <laughs> so he would get the, uh, the cutoffs that nobody wanted from the lumber yard, and I think they were probably not as expensive as the nice straight-edge lumber, um, and they were just going to waste. So he would bring them home, and, and they would be, you know, I don't know if you've been to a sawmill, but they, they cut off the outside of a, of a, a roundish tree, um, and so there's these kind of freeform slabs that come off the outside of the tree. And uh, he decided to use those. And because of his experience in the camp, he knew how to bridge cracks and holes and things with butterflies, with the butterfly joints. Um, And so, Dad said in the beginning, people didn't quite understand what he was doing. I remember when I was, I don't know if I was working in the office, uh, this trucker called up and said, I've got this dining table, and it's got this great big crack in it, and I didn't do it. And, and, and we kind of laughed and said, well, you know. well, anyway. Dad said, after a while, people paid extra for the, for the, the cracks and the butterflies. So that became one of his, his trademarks. But he believed in using uh, that there was beauty in the natural form of a tree. And I think he learned that also when he was in camp with this Japanese carpenter. Um, and he, you know, People back in the 40s would make what they call free-form furniture, I mean, Charlotte Perriand does free-form furniture that is kind of similar in feel to my father's, uh, but it was all man-made free-form. And Dad thought, well, nature made these beautiful forms, and uh, we need to work with nature instead of against her. And that's how he came up with this, I guess. I don't know. He never talked much, so it's I, it's it's a lot of conjecture.
2: <laughs> they say in the book that uh, my father was adamant that his furniture not be considered something overly precious, but should be used daily, oiled occasionally, and not expected to be perfect for the rest of its life. A certain amount of scratching and denting adds character to a piece.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, thank you.
2: <laughs> that is Over time, did he uh, develop an affinity for certain types of woods?
1: Well, when we first moved here, um, and it still is true, there there are a lot of walnut trees in the area, and many of them are taken down uh, for. uh, I don't know. New Hope, when we first moved here, was was mostly farm country, and now it's. Housing development country. So people take down a lot of trees to build those houses. And um, uh, there are a lot of walnut trees that have gotten big and are kind of leaning over people's houses. And I don't know if you've lived by a walnut tree, but they have nuts in the fall <laughs> that drop on your roof and make lots of noise. Um, so a lot of people take, or if they're leaning on the house, you have to take them down because it's dangerous. But there are a lot of walnut trees in the area. So it was common and it was. It was not that expensive, and the walnut that my dad used, what people didn't even want, because it's all you know these crazy shapes and full of cracks and knots and things. And But dad thought they were beautiful. And the, if you finish the wood with oil, it, it comes out very dark. And back in the forties, uh, the dark furniture was very popular. The Danish were using rosewood, because it wasn't that expensive at the time, and they were using teak. and. Um, it was, it was oiled, uh, and, and uh, so Dad sort of, you know, aesthetically, uh, his furniture kind of fit in with, with what was going on at the time, but it was, I think it was largely just because there's a lot of walnut in the area. But it, he found it was very beautiful, too. I mean, the trees that, that nobody wanted would, sometimes they'd have these um, they, bark inclusions down the center where, where the two main branches go off this way. And the bark sometimes gets caught between those uh, branches and and is embedded in the the trunk of the tree. And around that area is usually really beautiful grain. And to most people, that would be worthless. But it's 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 you know, Dad thought that was really beautiful, and and to incorporate that into his designs was was an adventure. But it was you know, he was very. He was very grateful to nature for giving him those forms.
2: Now, you're, you're an architect as well. How, how did you become interested in that? Obviously, your father, you're around design, uh, but oftentimes children rebel against their parents or they find their own path. How did you find your way to architecture?
1: Well, there was a, a bit of subtle pressure. The The early house, the first house we built, um, I was five years old. and. Dad told me to find rocks that fit into the wall that he was building, so I was actually helping build that first stone wall on the house. And then as time went on, um, when I graduated from high school, he was building a shell uh, for the pool house down down the hill here. And there was, usually when he built something that was unusual, like a warped shell roof, he would do a mock-up, and so he had me build a mock-up for the bigger shell when I was I was in high school <laughs> or graduating from high school, and um, you know he thought, well, if, I mean I didn't realize at the at the time maybe he says, you know, if you're going to be an architect, you've got to learn how to build. So you know I had to learn how to pour the concrete and lay blocks and figure out how to you know make the shell roof. So um, that was kind of a subtle initiation in architecture. But I was re- when I was in high school, I was really interested in languages and music. And I thought I was going to major in languages and music. I went to Ratcliffe College, and, and I found a really good professor who was, who was a, a linguist. And I thought, oh, this is, this is what I want to do. And then I joined the Choral Society and you know went, went to all kinds of concerts. And I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. And then sophomore year came along, and I had to choose a major. And Dad says, you're going into architecture. <laughs> So, I think it's, you know, who pays the piper calls the tune. But it was okay, because I also liked math um, when I was in high school, and, uh, and I liked art. So in a way, you know, architecture is a, is, utilizes both those skills, and uh, it, you know, it worked out. And it, it, when I went to Harvard, they, they called it architectural sciences, but it was mostly uh, it was in the field of humanity so it was more about architectural theory and history and I didn't then I went to when I after I graduated that dad, dad oh, no yes dad and mother sent me to Japan with Alan Watts and I did a Zen Buddhist tour of, of Japan when I first graduated in 1963 and then I had st- I you know, I went to Japan, and I looked like I should speak Japanese. I'd studied two years of Japanese language in, in college, and couldn't speak a word. And I, you know, people thought there was something wrong with me because I, I looked like I should understand. So I decided I better study Japanese intensively. So I studied Japanese intensively, and then Dad had two friends from the Raymond office. Junzo Yoshimura was one of them, and John Minami was another one. Um, and they were both teaching at different universities. Junzo was teaching at the National University, Geidai, um in Ueno Park. And he said, because I couldn't read and write Japanese, barely speak it, I could be a special student and, and study architecture with him. Or if I went to Waseda University, where his friend John Minami was teaching, um, they would accept my papers and, and, and exams in English. And so I decided, I would, and I could get a real degree. So I decided to go to Waseda and get a real degree. So, but that was hard. I, you know, all of my classmates had studied heavy-duty engineering, heavy-duty hand drafting for four years, and here I was with architectural sciences from Harvard. They were very tolerant and very uh, helpful. <laughs> so I, I ended up with my degree there, but it wasn't easy. <laughs>
2: What would you like people to think uh, of the legacy of George Nakashima?
1: Wow. Um, well, that's what we are trying to define and to preserve for the future. The obvious legacy is, is, is furniture making. Um, we would like, and woodworking itself um, is a craft, but it's, um, it's a mental training as well. And especially with our crew, I mean, in the old days, people used to come and work for us just because they needed a job, and you know, I guess that's why everybody's here because they need a job. Um, but I think it's more than that. The, the The men who are with us now are very sensitive, um, and they are so focused um, on their work and on their craft. It's like a meditation, and uh, especially my husband, uh, my daughter said I mean he's been making shaving chair spindles for almost 50 years and he's happy doing that and my daughter um, says well you know it's his form of meditation he just you know he doesn't have to think he just <laughs> he just shaves spindles day after day after day and puts them in the holes and makes sure they fit properly and that they're the right shape and so forth and 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 that's his work um, most of the men are a little more uh, fluent in different kinds of furniture than that. But, he's, uh, but it is interesting to see how the creativity of each person in our shop is manifested in their work. And I think nurturing that kind of peaceful creativity um, and our design department has evolved also. In, in the beginning, it was just dad. And then it was me helping. And then after dad died, it was just me for a while. And then after a while, I. I had too much to do, so i I had assistant designers, and that's been wonderful and it, it's been interesting because each of them comes with their own background and their own aesthetic and their own history and their own skills and they've all added something to our design department and we're we're much more um, detail oriented that was another thing about studying in Japan is very detail oriented um, and there was a lot of collaboration too. And I'm, I'm really glad that I went to Waseda and I had that experience um, studying architecture. It was the atelier system too. So you were actually building something or involved in building something that the professor was working on at the time. It wasn't just an isolated thing on a piece of paper. Um, um, so uh, we. I guess mostly Zen. when when Dad was in charge, he was very dictatorial. He was like the old Japanese masters and and the Zen masters. If you didn't do anything right, you were you were fired. Um, but we treasure our people now, and we try to nurture them. And each of them have different talents. Um, some of them are you know you give them a project, and uh, the designers will work on it for a while and and think that we've got the best solution and. While they're working on it, they'll come up with something else, or, or find things that we forgot to think about or include in the design, and so it's much more of a collaborative process than it used to be. And I think that collaboration is is a wonderful thing. And, and so we also have a foundation for peace. In 1984, Dad had a huge log, um, which his logger tried to sell him for a lot of money, and he was trying to figure out what am I going to do with this log? It's, it's it was. You know, one slab was bigger than the table here. And uh, he dreamed that he would make peace altars for the world out of this one log. And so he made the first one in 1986. It's at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. Uh, The second one, we, he was working on trying to get one to Russia at the time when he died in 1990. So we continued that effort. And finally, in 2001, we installed a peace altar. They wanted it called a peace table in Moscow at the Academy of Arts. And uh, there was a third one we made. It was very easy uh, to make. We made it at a lower height so people could sit on the floor around it. And it's in the city of peace, Orville, outside the the ashram in Pondicherry, where Dad had built this building, Gokond. So um, there are three so far. Um, we hope that there will be places for three more, at least, in other continents of the world. Um, but um, we're trying to combine the two, uh, the the nonprofit with the profit, for profit, in the future, and uh, to make it a, a you know a simpler and more viable entity. Um, I've been in contact with people at Patagonia who have something called a uh, what do they call it a um, a, a A purpose trust, um, so I mean our purpose is I think it's uh, preserving um, handcraft and designing by hand for the future because uh, i don't know, I just feel that if we everything goes digital and AI and you know escapes the human psyche, or it's going to be a terrible world. <laughs> so we feel that that's our mission uh, to preserve woodworking as a way to peace.
2: Well, we've been speaking with Miriam Nakashima, the president and creative director of the George Nakashima Woodworkers, and author of the process book. Thank you for
0: joining me.
1: Oh, thank you. That was easy. <laughs>
0: Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission, and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.